Do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to Psalm 146. Psalm 146. Uh, We're going to spend our time this morning in the psalm book, and we're going to look at this psalm, and uh, hopefully, Lord willing, God will use these words to really steady us in this uncertain time. So I'm going to read the psalm, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll pray, and we will get right to work. Psalm 146, starting in verse 1, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves righteousness. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations, praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that by your spirit, through your word, you would incline our hearts to worship you. We pray over these next minutes together, God, that you would use this time to help your church, your people, worship you, to set our affections on you, to gain a new perspective in these moments, Lord. And so we ask that this would be helpful. We're praying, God, that this would bless you, but that it would be helpful to each and every one of us, both physically present and watching online or maybe even watching later, Lord, you, would you please help your people navigate this moment? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to look at this under two headings, the call to praise and then the cause of our praise. The call to praise really envelops the entire psalm. In verses 1 and 2, it tells us to praise the Lord, and then in verse 10, it ends as well with that idea of praise. So let's start there. The call to praise is a call for the people of God to worship God. Look at verses one and two. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. The people of God are called to worship God. Praise is the human activity that we're called to do. Um, I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It asks the question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, it's saying, what is the purpose for which humanity exists? Why are we here? What are we supposed to do? What's our primary function in the world? And the catechism goes on to answer it this way, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you want to understand what you're made for, you are made for worship. You are called to be a people who are worshiping the God who is. You're called to glorify God in everything that you do. That's another thing that we see here in these first two verses. Praise is all-encompassing. It's not something that you can relegate to an hour on Sunday. It actually becomes an entire way of life. It says in verse 2, I will praise the Lord all my life. 
Everything about my life is meant to be an expression of gratitude to God. I will praise God all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. In other words, it's all of life for all of life. It's all of everything that you do for the entirety of as long as you exist. You are called to worship God. And so we hear things like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It means that everything that we're doing, we're doing to the glory of God. It means that when we come to church, surely that's an expression of praise. We gather with the church community and we lift our voices together and we sing about the God who is, but we also disperse and we scatter and we go about the different activities throughout the course of our week in a way that's pleasing to God. So 1 Corinthians 10.31 puts it like this, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. We're called to be worshipers. It is the human activity for which we're made. It is something that's meant to be all-encompassing, involving everything that we do, all of life, all of work, all of our hobbies. We are called to praise God. And finally, we also see that praise is not circumstantial. This psalm reminds us that we praise God even when things aren't going well. Christopher Ash points out that most of the scholars believe that Psalm 147 was, or 146 was composed um, during a season when the people of God had been exiled from their homeland. So Psalm 146 is written and produced during a season when everything has kind of fallen apart. Um, the exile was the experience where the people of God were forcibly removed from their homeland. Their place of worship, the temple, was decimated. Uh, the, the, the land is now foreign occupied by other people. The priesthood is now corrupt. The people are ignorant of the things of God. All these things are going poorly for them. So things that they would normally look at and say, man, this is inspiring that God has gifted us with this reality. He's given us a promised land. We worship him. God has given us a temple, a place where he set his glory and, and people come into that place and they experience something of his magnitude and we worship him. And he's given us a priesthood that helped the people know how to live under God's rulership. And all these different things now are in disrepair. And the psalmist is telling us, we praise God even still. Our praise for the Lord is not circumstantial. It doesn't depend on favorable circumstances for us to worship God. In fact, Psalm 137 reminds us of that hard process of getting to the place where they could, Psalm 146, worship God no matter what. Psalm 137, I'll show it to you here. We'll put it up on the screens. But it says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. They were taken away from their homeland and they're now in Babylon and they said, We hung up our instruments. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tor tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of those songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while we're in a foreign land? They were so disheartened by everything that was going on that they had a moment here in Psalm 137 where they said, we don't even know how to sing right now. But then the more that they reflected on the goodness of God, they continued to produce liturgy and worship music, and they got to Psalm 146, and they said, no, 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 here's what we do. We praise the Lord at all times and all circumstances. We don't have to wait to get back home to worship God. 
We don't have to wait for everything to look the way that we want it to look in our society for us to worship God. We are called to worship God no matter what. And so what I'm trying to do today, and I'll just be very forward with this agenda of mine, what I'm trying to do today is I'm trying to get us into Psalm 146 so that we maybe take a step back from everything that's happening in our world today and we kind of look at things from God's perspective. What I'm hoping will happen is that as we're invited into this experience of worship, we begin to evaluate everything that's going on in the world through a different lens. And I hope and I pray that that will be helpful for you, but I really do believe that that's what we need. Most of us are kind of living in the cultural moment of all the chaos that's going on, and I hope that we can kind of step back and, and see things from God's point of view. And I'll even, I'll even put it like this. Um, I believe that Christians would feel a whole lot different about the things that are happening in our society if our faces weren't buried in our phones, but were buried instead in our hands in prayer or in the word trying to discern what God is saying. I think, we would, we, I think the church, Christianity in general, would actually have a lot different perspective if we weren't simply following the news cycle or listening to the things that are being told us in our news feeds. We need a different perspective, and I'm hoping that church this morning can kind of maybe give you a little bit of a reset and give you an opportunity to kind of think a little bit differently about what's going on because you're being invited into this experience of worshiping God and when you do that, I, I think it changes the way that you evaluate the current circumstances. Now, I think this is super important because we're living through a time that is very bizarre. Um, Mark Sayers is a pastor in Australia. He's in Melbourne, Australia, and one of the gifts that he has is the ability to interpret the times. He's been doing this uh, for, for a while now, and he's been very, very helpful to me personally but he was noting that sociologists are pointing out right now the way we interact with information is different than it used to be. In fact, in the digital era, because there's so much information, we simply can't do it like we used to. You're, you're being inundated with all these different things. And so what the sociologists are saying is that we're beginning to process information through what they're calling is tribalism. Meaning when you hear things, you're running it through the grid of your tribe and, and kind of the spiritual narrative that your tribe has. Um, previously, in the modern era, here's how we would deal with information. We would, we would be reasonable about it. We would, we would weigh it out. We'd think about the plausibility of it. We'd kind of think it through and maybe discuss it and dialogue around it, and then we'd come to our conclusions. But right now, because there's so much information, Mark Sayers, and others are saying what we're doing now is we're, we're reverting back to this tribalistic way of dealing with the world. And we are therefore spiritualizing the things that we hear and we are silencing or demonizing the things that don't agree with what we already think. And I think that's true. I see that in the life of our society. I see that even in the life of our church. I see this tendency to evaluate things through that grid of what you already think is true, and, and I'm not sure that that's very helpful. So again, I'm trying to give us an opportunity to step back and say, okay, let's worship God, let's gain some new perspective, and let's be able then to re-engage with society. Um, and you might be thinking, okay, Cor, well, that sounds cute, but 
don't we need to do something right now? I mean, doesn't this moment call for our activity? If you want to, you know, give us some space to just think about God and think about, you know, things in the heavenlies, that's wonderful, but don't we have to do something? And I find C.S. Lewis very helpful on this point. In his book, Mere Christianity, I'll, I'll read an excerpt from it. He says, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but it's actually one of the things that a Christian is meant to do. So he's, he's combating this idea where people say, look, to just think about the heavenly things is unproductive and ineffective. And Lewis is saying, no, 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 that's actually something that we're supposed to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set, the, set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, they all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Christians are a people who need to have our head in heaven. We need to be thinking about the heavenly things. We need to be thinking about the God who is there. And that will actually make us far more productive and effective at handling the issues of the day. So again, church family, I invite you to reflect on who God is. I call you to worship him. I invite you to think about the God who is. Look at verse 10. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. So the call to praise, and now the cause for praise in verses 3 to 9. We have a reason to praise God, and it is God. He is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of our praise. And in verses 3 to 9, we get something like 10 to 12, depending on how you count it, 10 to 12 different descriptions of God's activity in the world. And so let me paraphrase them for you. You can look at them in the text right in front of you. But here are some things for which we ought to worship God. We worship God because he is the creator of heaven and earth. He's the one who made everything, who rules everything. He is God. We worship God because he's the upholder of the oppressed. He's the one who looks at people who are down and out, who are in a situation of oppression, and he's able to do something for them. We worship God because he's able to give food to the hungry. There are those who are in need, and he's able to sustain and satisfy them. We worship God because he's the one who releases the captive from prison. He's the one who can liberate someone who's wrongly incarcerated. We worship God because he can grant sight to the blind. To those who are walking around in darkness, he gives light and life. We worship God because he's the one who can lift the head of the lowly, the down and out. He's able to raise them up in glory. We worship God because he's the one who loves the righteous. We worship God because he's the one who looks after the foreigner. We worship God because he's the one who sustains the fatherless and the widow. Those who, who, who need help, God is able to help. And he's also the one who frustrates the way of the wicked. We worship God because of who he is. And therefore, this psalm is an invitation to experience the blessing 
of worshiping God. Look at verse 5. It says, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. People who are blessed are those who are looking to God in this moment for, for his answer and his remedy that only he alone can give. And it's contrasted with trusting in something else. Look at verse 3. It says, Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. It's reminding us of the frailty of humanity. And, and the thing that believers need to do is to not put their hope in a physical person. You might be thinking, what are we talking about here with princes? My, my daughter's seven, and she, um, she got a, a gift this Christmas, and it was a, a princess. And she is well-coached, so we tell her, you know, when you get a gift, you better say thank you. People spend their hard-earned money on the presents that they get you, and uh, we want to express our gratitude. And so she's like, thank you for my gift, and she gives a hug and everything else. And then she comes over and she goes, Daddy, remember, I don't like princesses anymore. Right? Are we talking about that kind of princess? And she, you know, in her mind, she's thinking about, you know, princesses, Disney princesses. But here we have these princes, and they are human leaders, influential people, um, people who can get something done. And we're reminded in the scriptures here and in other places that Christians need to be people who aren't putting their hope in human beings to save us, organizations to save us, political agendas to save us, or even political leaders to save us. We are people who do not put our trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. This is an important lesson for the church to learn in this season. We are not looking to some sort of answer that we're going to find in society. We're not looking to somebody uh, to try to rescue us from the moment that we're in. We're looking to God alone. We're not putting our hope in, in a human being. We're not putting our hope in an organization or a political party. We are looking to the God alone who can save. I've uh, said this from the beginning. I've said if you're trying to solve a spiritual problem with a political solution, you're going to be very frustrated. We need to be people who aren't looking to princes, but instead are looking to God. And here's why. Verse 4 tells us, When the spirit of a human being departs, they return to the ground, and on that very day their plans come to nothing. No matter how great of a political uh, policy a person may have, there's an expiration date on them. And it's important for Christians to remember the temporariness of human leaders, and to remind ourselves that there's a day coming where they will cease to exist, and their plans will come to nothing. But in contrast to that, we look to God. If we're told that humans cannot save, the opposite of that would be the thing that we're meant to feel is, well, there is someone who can, and it is God. God is the one who can save. And you see his saving work here in verses 3 to 9. He is able to do something, and therefore we worship him. He's able to deal with the condition of humanity that we find. So he saves us spiritually. I think it's interesting that uh, the, the language here of oppression and hunger and blindness and captivity and being low and being uh, spiritually bankrupt and being a, an orphan, all of those things are actually picked up in the Bible and applied in a spiritual way. 
That that's what it means to need salvation, that, God, that we are spiritually blind, that we're spiritually hungry, that we're spiritually oppressed, that we're spiritually captive, that we're spiritually down and out, that we're spiritually orphaned, and God is able to save us through the sending of his Son. And so we worship God because of his great salvation. Humans cannot save, but God can, and he, he worked his salvation by sending his Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be righteousness for us. And we place our faith in his finished work and we experience life and light and redemption and freedom and, and exaltation together with him. That's a beautiful thing. So God saves us spiritually, but he also cares for us physically. These categories are, are not irrelevant. They're very important. There's this physicality to God's concern for us. When you look at those different realities of oppression and hunger and blindness and captivity and being in need and all these different things, God does meet those needs. He is able to meet those needs. He physically cares for people. In fact, in Luke um, 4, this is the inauguration of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. He stands up in the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah the prophet. In Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, and we'll put it up on the screen, but he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom from the, for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The ministry of Jesus Christ was aimed not only at that sp spiritual salvation, but also the physical liberation from these hardships. And so the church needs to follow suit. We need to be a people who take up the calling of Jesus Christ to be a blessing in the world. We need to worship the God who is and then see his character on display and seek to align our lives to that reality. People who care for the immigrant and the widowed and the, the helpless. And we need to be able to do things that, that display and express that care and concern of God himself. So Michael Wilcock, and this is, this is where we'll end here, that this idea of we praise God because of who he is and what he's doing. Michael Wilcock, in his short little commentary, he puts it like this. He says, in a big, complex world, what we find is an infinite variety of problems. We also find an infinite variety of people and an infinite variety of needs. So the psalmist here sees all of these needs in relationship to the Lord, the maker and savior who remains faithful forever in God's ability and his own ability to do something about those concerns. What we find in Psalm 146 is this invitation to praise God because he's the one who's aware of everything that's happening in our world and it is not out of control for him. He is the one who is able to perfectly care for the infinite variety of needs that we find in our world right now. We trust in him. He is able to save and so we worship him. So church family, again, there's a call to praise him, and there is great cause to praise him. So would you pray with me now, and then we'll join together in worship of him. But let's bow. Lord, we ask right now, again, that you would incline our hearts. We're praying, Lord, that you would help us to see things from your perspective. You are creator God, maker of heaven and earth. And you are Savior, God. You are the one who sent your Son to be our salvation. And you care. And you're able to do something about these situations that we find in our world, the brokenness that we see in our society.
Lord, we repent of all the times that we've tried to solve our problems with human ingenuity, our political solutions. God, we need you. And so we as your church, we want to cry out for you, for you to display your power and your might for your own glory. And we pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.